morning, everybody. I'm just going to take a moment. Y'all, my name's Ben. If I haven't met you, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm just going to take a moment and thank the Lord for the last song that we sung and what it means to be in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So let me pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that your Spirit is alive and active and it is always with us, present in our hearts, but sometimes it manifests itself in a special way in which we're able to get a foretaste of heaven. We sense your goodness, your love, and your grace, and your power, and it settles upon us in a very unique way. Anytime you are um, in your goodness, you would desire to, to, to pour out your spirit more upon us as a people. We are open to it in our hearts, Lord. And we thank you for being a God who is so worthy of praise. May your spirit come and be among us this morning. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. All right. It's so good to be with you, uh, brothers and sisters. I just want to, you know, because 80% of you aren't here during announcements, I want to talk a little about Holy Week. So we saved the good announcements until now because y'all aren't here. So Holy Week is great. It's... um, What an amazing opportunity we have to reflect on the cross and the resurrection in the last week of Jesus' life. And if there's a theatrical nature to Holy Week, um, if you participate in all of the, the things that we offer, you really do have a chance to walk with Jesus over this last week. So on Thursday, Thursday is, uh, a time in the church we call Maundy Thursday. Uh, Mondi just comes from the Latin word mandate, and it's just talking about Jesus' command, the last command he gives to his disciples, to love one another as I have loved you. And so on Thursday, what we do is we gather in homes and we share a simple meal, and we, we talk about what it means to keep that command with one another, to love one another as Christ has loved us. If you're in a small group already, your, your, your small group should be hosting one of these. Um, if you are not in a small group and you would like to participate, you can go to our website and you can sign up and we'll put you in a, in a, in a group that's being hosted just for that event so you can participate in Maundy Thursday. And then on Friday at 730, uh, 7.30, we have our darkness service, which is a time when we remember the cross. We remember um, God's, it, we remember our great need and God's great love as it's revealed to us on the cross. A very significant service for us. On Saturday, Holy Saturday, we'll for the first time be having an Easter vigil. vigil. It's a new service for us, but it's one that has ancient roots. And we join much of the global church on Saturday evening celebrating the moment when Christ's life rushes back into his body, when death is defeated. And during the short service, we'll light candles, we'll tell the great stories of God's deliverance, we'll witness baptisms, and we'll remember the significance of our own baptism. 9 p.m., better come. And then on Sunday, Easter Sunday, of course, we'll remember the resurrection. He is risen. He is risen indeed. We'll have worship at 8 a.m. and 
10.45, and we'll have a brunch uh, in the in-between services to celebrate. So join us this season uh, for Holy Week. Um, But it begins today with Palm Sunday. And so I'm going to have us turn our attention to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and I'll be reading verses 12 through 16 on this Palm Sunday. The Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 16. This is God's Word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out. So imagine a large crowd crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you are gaining nothing. Look! The whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, would you come by your spirit again and move amongst us, open up our hearts and ears to be able to receive from this your word. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, So to understand this pretty familiar scene to us, you need to understand the context. Let's just start in the first verse. It says, The next day the large crowd had come to the feast. They had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So you have this large crowd descending to Jerusalem for the feast. And the feast is Passover. Early in uh, John chapter 12, we learn that as well as in all the other Gospels. Now, it's hard to describe what Passover meant to a Jewish person. It was a big deal. It was a really big deal. It was a festival, a week-long festival loaded with both religious and national meaning because Passover commemorated the Exodus. That incredible moment when God saved his people from the oppressive rule of Pharaoh and Egypt. And so over the years, this had become a time not to only look back to the past at that great deliverance, but to come together and to long for God to do it again because the Jews found themselves 
under the oppressive rule of another empire, Rome. They were under Roman rule and occupation, and they desperately wanted to be free. And so Passover wasn't just a religious observance. It was a once a year freedom rally for the nation of Israel. And as a result, the festival had become this staging ground for revolt. A, a, a day, kind of a week charged with so much significance and meaning that it was often exploited by the many armed militia groups, zealots, and freedom friders that lived around Jerusalem. And so over the years, we know from history that, they, that those groups had used this occasion, the occasion of Passover, to stage riots and to engage in armed conflict with Rome. And Rome knew this. And so they would bring down more soldiers for this week to help keep the peace and to ward off any violent protest that might arrive. So even on the best Passover day, um, Jerusalem during Passover would have been a city full of excitement, but also a tremendous amount of tension. And what added to the drama was the sheer number of people that were present. And so our text says it was a large crowd. That was an understatement. So the scholars will tell us that the population of Jerusalem on a non-Passover week was about 50,000 people. But the numbers would more than double as pilgrims streamed into the city. So imagine a city built for 50,000 and it now has, it's swelled to maybe 120,000 people in the city, packed in like sardines, pilgrims everywhere, spilling across the, the city. There's not enough holiday inns. They're in the hillsides, camping. So you see it in your mind. There's, there's, there's the pilgrims, there's protesters, there's counter-protesters, there's an amped up police force, there's a city on edge. It's a powder keg of tension. And any small spark could make the thing blow. And guess who the crowd heard is coming to town? It ain't Santa. It's Jesus. And look at how they greet him. Verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Two significant things about that verse. First, what the people do, and secondly, what the people say. First, what the people do. They have the palms. Now, when we think of palm branches, we think of kids. And our kids have palm branches, and that's right, because after Jesus came, the palm br branch became a sign of His coming, His second coming, our longing for Him, a symbol of peace. 
And so we have visions of palm branches with little kids dressed up on Palm Sunday, waving them in the air. Maybe you were one of those kids. We think confetti, streamers. That's not what the Jewish people would have thought of. They would have thought of revolution. Palms at this time were a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Um, 200 years before this story, before Jesus, Israel was under the oppressive rule of another regime, Syria. And one day, a man, Judas Maccabeus and his brothers, gathered a military force and led a revolt against the Syrian nation. And they were successful. They overthrew their oppressors and they earned Israel this short stint of peace and prosperity. And when Judas Maccabeus and his brothers and soldiers made their way back into Jerusalem, we have an ancient text that tells us how they were greeted. Can I read it to you? It says, the people made their entry back into the city with acclamations. And the crowds were carrying palm branches to the sounds of lyres and cymbals and harps. And they were chanting hymns saying a great enemy had been crushed and thrown out of Israel. Sound familiar? So from that time on, the palm branch was used as a symbol of ruling power. And in both of Jews, the Jewish um, major wars with Rome, palms were used by the rebels when they made their own currency to spite Rome. So they would craft their own currency. Guess what they would stamp on the coins? Palm branch. This was a revolutionary symbol symbolizing Israel's national hopes, now focused on Jesus, being hailed as a savior king as he enters the city. But what are they wanting salvation from? Rome. They're saying, this is like Judas Maccabeus, only better. And they were saying, Hosanna, which is a phrase that just means God save us. And it's a direct quote from Psalm 118, a psalm that would have been used regularly around Jewish festivals, but they add a line. Bless, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That's not in the psalm. They added that. So they were looking at Jesus and they were saying, here is the fulfillment of Psalm 118, our Savior and King. And you put it all together and you have quite a scene, don't you? Crowds of tens of thousands waving revolutionary flags, hailing Jesus as the coming King in a city where Caesar was Lord And Herod was the puppet king. Holy cow. What's going to happen? I just want you to feel like the tension of the scene. And maybe I can just get at it like this. Have you ever been in a crowd like that? 
It is both scary and intoxicating to be in a city where there's that much tension. It's hard to keep your wits about you. It's chaotic. It's uncertain. You either want to run away or sometimes we get carried up in the energy of it all. What would it have been like for Jesus to have all these people chanting your name? All that he had to do to get them to pick up a sword was push the button and say it's on. People chanting your name, that too can be intoxicating, can it? I once heard a wise man say that you can get a man to do anything if you chant his name. How will Jesus respond? It's amazing. Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey colt. Now to understand Jesus' response, you have to know what he did and what John said about it. So first, what he did. He sits on a donkey. And that, for Jesus, is a deeply symbolic move. On the one hand, Jesus is affirming their suspicion that he has come to be their king. The donkey was a royal animal. And often kings would use them to ride into cities. And so he's saying, you're right, I'm a king. But donkeys were a particular kind of royal animal. They were only used by kings who were coming with messages of peace. You see, if you were a king and you were threatening to conquer a city, you weren't going to ride a donkey. You were going to ride a war horse. A horse is big and scary and majestic and powerful. Consider any picture you, you know of, of George Washington. If you've seen a portrait of George Washington, 100% of the time, how is he pictured? On a, like a, a beside, either on or beside a large horse. Um, and that makes sense because Washington was a, a general, a soldier going into battle. But could you imagine a great portrait of George Washington and he's just sitting on a donkey? You can't, because a man on a donkey isn't looking for war. Somebody on a donkey ain't looking for a fight. A man on a donkey is coming in peace. And so by coming on a donkey, here's what Jesus is saying. I am a king. You are absolutely right about that. But I'm not the kind of king that you are expecting. In one symbolic move, Jesus both receives their affirmation of kingship and rejects the ideas that they had brought along with it. And now we, before we, we go to John's theological interpretation of all of this, I just want you to think about the effect that that would have had on the crowd. He's tempering down the chaos, calming the tension. By grabbing the donkey and sitting on it, he's turning the heat down. And so as I thought about, you know, that scene in the Gospels where Jesus is in the boat with the disciples and there's the storm. 
And the storms are beating against the ship. And the disciples are scared and frightened. And they wake Jesus up. And Jesus moves to the front of the boat. And he rebukes the wind. And he says, shh, quiet, be still. And then the wind calmed. Well, here it's a storm, but it's not the weather. It's the raging passions and violent instincts of the human heart. And by choosing the donkey, it's like Jesus moves to the front of the crowd and says, Shh, quiet, be still. Now, I don't think the crowd got it. Um, But if we have any question whether this was Jesus' intention, John theologically interprets the action for us in verse 15 by saying this was fulfillment of a prophecy. He says, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey colt. And that um, is a quotation from Zechariah 9.9, a passage well known to Israel talking about the coming Messiah and declaring that God's king was going to come, but he was going to be a king who was coming in meekness, gently riding on a donkey. This is sometimes called the prophecy of the gentle king. And when uh, John chooses to lift up this quotation, he's asking us to think about this passage And the passage as a whole, not just the line he quoted. It's like when we quote a movie line, we don't just reference the line, we're referencing the whole scene. It comes to our mind. And so whenever the Bible quotes one verse, it's asking for us to bring that whole passage and upload it into our mind. And I'll just read the the passage to you here. This is Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations." His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So that's the quotation in full. This is what he's come to do. And we see three things here. First, this king comes and wars cease. He takes all of the war machines and he breaks them All the war horses are banished from Jerusalem forever. Secondly, he proclaims peace to the nations, not war to the nations. How frustrating that would have been for Israel in the first century. They wanted judgment for the nations. They wanted military might. But when this gentle king comes, he proclaims peace to everyone, even their enemies. And thirdly, when the gentle king comes, because of a sacrifice, prisoners are going to be set free. 
He says, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. So you put that all together, and what you have is Zechariah declaring that one day your king is going to come. He's going to come humble and gentle. He's going to come riding on a donkey. He's going to be the kind of king that makes war cease. He's going to proclaim peace to the nations. And because of a sacrifice, a blood, the blood of the covenant, he's going to set prisoners free. And by choosing a donkey and riding into Jerusalem, Jesus is saying, that's me. That's who I am. That's the kind of king that I am. I am the king not that you want. I am the kind of king that you need. I have come not to just save you from Rome, but to save you from a much bigger enemy. You see, as great as the, the victory of Judas Maccabeus was, that led people to celebrating with palm branches, 50 years later, Rome comes knocking on the door and takes control. The people were saved, but not really. Only briefly, until another evil empire came around. And they were under another occupation. And the crowd is saying, we need another Judas Maccabeus. We need someone who will save us from the evil empire. And Jesus is saying, y'all, I'm about bigger fish. I'm here to provide a salvation that's deeper, more permanent, and much more wide-reaching. And we're told just a few verses later in John chapter 12 who the enemy is. In John chapter 12, it says, Now the time of the judgment for this world has come. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And the prince of this world is not Caesar. It's the devil. And along with the devil, death. The punishment for sin. All that the devil represents. That is the enemy that Jesus has come to defeat. Jesus says, I, I know you think you need salvation from Rome. But if all I did was beat back Rome, you'd be vulnerable to another nation at another time. Or maybe worse, you'd be tempted to become a conquering nation yourself. You need a deeper salvation. Along with the heart and hope that comes with it. You need salvation from sin and death. And that is the enemy I've come to defeat. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about Rome or their physical suffering. He does. And it's clear in the Bible that one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set up his kingdom of justice and, and, and peace on earth but this first coming, this first Palm Sunday, Jesus recognizes that all of the brokenness in our world is only possible because of this great enemy that he's come to defeat. And if there's ever going to be lasting hope, hope that goes beyond the grave, beyond our circumstances, beyond any tyrant leader or corrupt human power, then Jesus is going to have to do business with a real enemy. 
And how would he do it? It says that when he's glorified. And in John's gospel, the glory of Jesus is always tied to the cross of Jesus. Jesus defeats the enemy. He's going to secure this victory not by carrying a sword, but by being pierced by one. Not by using his power to conquer others, but by giving his powers to others and being conquered himself for the sake of love. Jesus came to give his life as a sacrifice, to be a ransom for many. And that's how he really sets prisoners free. He's come to bring an eternal kingdom beyond the boundaries of our little nations. He is the gentle king who gives up his life for others so that we can have eternal life. And his disciples don't get it. Not yet. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. That's just like his disciples. That's a disciple move right there, not to get Jesus on the first take. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and done to him. So this is an important verse that there were grand and glorious things at work on Palm Sunday. Ancient promises were being fulfilled on Palm Sunday, but they couldn't see it. They didn't recognize it. It was a long time before the disciples were able to put the pieces together. It wasn't as if they were watching Jesus ride in on the donkey and they said, oh yeah, Zechariah 9. We better put down the palm branches. This is the fulfillment of that ancient promise. And this is, this is just what spiritual life looks like. We look at the circumstances of our life and it doesn't look like God's ancient promises for us are being fulfilled. It looks like a bunch of disappointing donkeys when we're looking for war horses. So much of life is a series of unmet expectations and disappointments and hurts and sorrows. Dr. Martin Luther King said that life is a continual story of shattered dreams. And he wasn't being pessimistic when he said that. He was being realistic. How many of the things we want for our lives just don't unfold the way we want them to? How much of our life is spent in the waiting room, in the hoping room, with unfulfilled expectations? But what Palm Sunday says is that salvation need not always feel like salvation for God to be at work. And often it's only a glance in the rearview mirror that we see how God is working in our painful and confusing circumstances. It's only later that we we are able to see that God has been absolutely true to his resolute promise to work all things together for our good and for our salvation. Sometimes it's not until we're in glory that we can see it, but we will see it. Well, the disciples just see disappointing donkeys at this point. They will see it. 
But in the disappointing donkeys, God is fulfilling ancient promises. The disciples don't get it. Neither do the crowds, verses 17 and 18. It says, the crowds that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Now get this, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. I think that John is trying to expose the spiritual blindness of the crowd. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but instead of concluding that the man Jesus might have his sights set on an enemy bigger than Rome, death itself, they instead just saw a sign miracle worker. They saw power in that sign that could be exploited for their own purposes. Even when they saw a man raised from the dead, they concluded what they wanted to conclude about who Jesus was. The disciples didn't get it, neither did the crowds, but get this, ironically, the only one who sees Jesus' greater mission are his enemies. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So here we're to imagine the Pharisees with their murderous plots huddled in the background together, kind of arguing with another, pointing the finger at one another, saying, our plans aren't working. We were supposed to dampen the excitement about Jesus. We were supposed to take out his kingdom movement. Now look at the crowds. It's like the whole world is going after him. Little did they know that they were they were like speaking a prophecy here because they were commenting about the size of the crowd. But, what, but with what Jesus was about to accomplish at Holy Week, with the cross and the resurrection, he was going to draw people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to himself. The whole world was going to be rushing to Jesus and to his kingdom. So what do we take away from that? Our world is familiar with crowds. The violent military bullies who wage war on the innocent. The political crowds on both the right and the left yelling out their vindictive slogans. Our political flags and protest banners flying around like so many palm branches, much of it in the name of Jesus, the world like a powder keg ready to explode. Do you feel it? It can make us fearful on the one hand. There's so much intoxicating anger tempting us to participate in it. But here comes a man on Palm Sunday riding into our little worlds on a donkey. One who loves us and our enemies, gives forgiveness to all, and asks us to do the same. The one who comes waging not war, but peace. 
who knows who the true enemy is and reminds each one of us of it. He rides right into the middle of the powder keg of our lives in our world this Palm Sunday and says, shh, quiet, be still. Let there be peace to the anger in your hearts. It's not the triumphal entry, it's the great donkey corrective. (laughs) Calling his confused idiot disciples not to be mad at one another, not to give in to the crowds, not to do stupid stuff when we're online in the digital crowd, saying stuff that we would never say to a person in their face, but asking us to forgive our enemies and follow the Prince of Peace. So whether it's an old friend who has hurt you or a boss who makes life difficult, your annoying neighbor, or a competing political party, you are following Jesus. And we are called to love the Prince of Peace. Shh, quiet, be still. And he's come to give peace to our confusion about why he isn't saving us from the things we think we need salvation from. Because we are people who are crying out, Hosanna, God save me right now. Save me from this circumstantial enemy that is oppressing me. And I want to say that God cares about that. But he's here to deal with bigger realities. This morning, Jesus doesn't promise us health or wealth or a wonderful circumstantial life. Jesus promises to do business with death. He conquers death for you and for me. So that in this present life, we can know that that's taken care of. And if we know that our hope beyond the grave is secure, then we can navigate anything in this life differently, with wisdom, with grace, and with hope. God so loved the world that he has gone to the thing that should scare us the most, the thing that rips us apart, that rips our loved ones from us. He's gone to the worst enemy that we have, death, and he says, death, you will not have the last word. I cast out, I cast out the devil, the ruler of this world. And what that means is that whatever is haunting you, whatever is hurting you, doesn't have the last word. Your cancer doesn't have the last word. Your divorce doesn't have the last word. Your present tears don't have the last word. Your confusion doesn't have the last word. The crowds don't have the last word. Neither will Rome or Russia. Neither will the raging bullies or evil empires of our own days. Weeping is overcome. Lack of answers is overcome. The raging, boasting enemies of God, they are overcome. Because the one who comes to the tomb... The place of death, the one who can, the only one who can speak a word there says, It is finished. I am the Prince of Peace, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. And he gets the last word. He is the Son of God. And his last word is, It is finished. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's like Eastery. 
so today we be still and we remember that he came not in power but in meekness. Not in strength but in weakness. Not for, first to the rich but to the poor. Not to fulfill our wish list but for the sake of the world. Not to congratulate us but to change us. He's the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords. We follow Him. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Palm Sunday. And uh, You ride into our lives on a donkey. And You say to us, shh, be still. Let the anger in your heart be still. Let the restlessness of your life be still. Let your fear be still, your confusion. I am here. I have conquered. I am coming again. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be able to, um, that we would make the road clear for you to ride again into our lives and to proclaim your peace and your gospel. We're so grateful for the type of king that you are. And we give you praise in Christ's name.